we are in the letter to the Galatians, and we're in the middle part of the letter, which is uh, theological. The first part of the letter was biographical, the first two chapters. And the last two chapters are application, though it's always important when uh, looking at some teaching in the Bible to be sure it gets connected to our lives. And chapters 3 and 4 in Galatians, well, they're dense, (laughs) they're thick, and they may strike us as, well, remote. They're just hard to get our hands around uh, completely for a variety of reasons. And and so it just takes a little bit more time to move through uh, this and be sure that we've captured what Paul's uh, getting at. And there's a handout there, a little excerpt uh, from John Fesco. Uh, on his uh, his commentary on Galatians. Uh, John is a professor of both uh, historical and systematic theology. He served at Westminster, currently serves at Reformed. And you'll find a, a very carefully uh, uh, reasoned, very short, uh, connecting what it says here in Galatians to both the doctrines of sanctification and justification. So, Let's pray and then we'll stand and read. Father in heaven, uh, uh, let's stand together. Father in heaven, we ask in your goodness that you'd open your word to our hearts and minds now. In Christ's name we pray. We're reading a long passage from Galatians 3 and then from Genesis 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, Uh, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then from Genesis chapter 15, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. If you're going to turn there, that's, that's okay. <laughs> I'll give you a moment to do that. I'm sorry. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land uh, to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young uh, pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and deep darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You may be seated. An old trapper was caught in an early wintered blizzard in northern Canada. The wind chill factor was minus uh, 40 degrees below zero, and he felt he couldn't go on. And then out of nowhere, he saw a, a light. And then he noticed there were more lights, and he realized he'd reached a settlement. And just when he thought he was home free, he noticed that there was a frozen river between himself and the settlement. There was no way to go around uh, the river, and there was no way that he could remain out in the cold. And since it was early winter, he reasoned the ice might not 
support him. And so he began to walk very carefully over the ice. After a while, he thought he heard the ice crack. And so to spread his weight out, he got down on his hands and knees and began uh, to crawl. And as he reached the very center of uh, the river, uh, sweating with fear and realizing he had very little time left, the fear of falling through the ice to a chilly death in that dark river uh, overcame him. And so he laid out flat upon the ice and crawled along by inches. Suddenly he heard bells. Could it be? Do I hear bells? And he did. And the sound grew louder. And he heard horses uh, coming. And then as they were almost upon him, he turned around. And yes, within feet of him was a logging sleigh being drawn by a team of horses. The bells made uh, music and there was singing. And he knew that the ice was solid. And so he jumped up and ran to the other side. Now, this story uh, illustrates one of the things that Paul's pressing home in this letter. Both the sleigh driver and the trapper made it safely to the other side. And everyone who puts their trust in Christ Jesus, believing that God has raised him from uh, the dead for us, will make it to the other side. They'll actually be Christ-like. They'll be holy. They'll possess actual righteousness. They'll receive the fullness of salvation and enter into eternal uh, life in the new heavens and the new earth where they'll never ever again be troubled by evil, have a reason to weep, and they themselves will not be able to sin. Now both our progress in becoming like Christ as well as our assurance rests on our being declared righteous. Our becoming like Christ, this change happens when we're given a new life. And it continues as we exercise uh, faith and depend on the Holy uh, Spirit to change us, uh, to change what we love and what we desire what preoccupies our minds and our hearts, so that what we seek and depend on for our happiness, our security, our identity, and significance lies with Christ. There are just two ways to live, Paul says, to live in a relationship with God. Not just to begin a relationship with God, but to relate to Him. One is reliance on the law. To think that God relates to you and me on a performance basis, or that I relate to him on a performance basis. And the other is a reliance on promise. It holds that God relates to me on the basis of promise, and I relate to him on promise. Now, this is what Paul takes up, how the promise and the law are related to each other. And Christians get this confused. And it's not actually always easy uh, to put this in right perspective. 
One of the reasons we get confused is there's something deep within the human heart that thinks, and this is the essence of religion, if I do these things, then I will get the life I want to. We come to think that by doing, we obtain uh, life. This happens with our personal code of conduct. It happens with how we order our lives and Uh, It can happen with God's law. You may remember it's Jewish Christians that have come and troubled the church in Galatia. And Jesus, uh, speaking to the Jews in his day, said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What he's saying is, in effect, you're missing uh, the message of all of Scripture. The entire Old Testament, one way or another, points to me. All its promises of life are found in me. Come to me and live. But they searched the law with great intent because they thought, in their knowledge and behavior, their obedience to the law, their protection of their lives from law breaking, that they would receive life. Christians often get this relationship wrong between law and promise. The gospel is not the law. That that ought to be really clear. The law is not the gospel. Believing is not the same thing as doing. Doing and believing are not the same things. In the Christian life in the Bible, rightly understood, doing flows out of believing. We believe the gospel promise. We receive new life. We receive the Spirit and continue to receive the Spirit and live in a new way as a result. And if you get this wrong, you'll lose your joy. You'll lose your peace. And you may, in fact, uh, wander so far from Christ that you lose life itself because you end up trusting in yourself. Now, the second reason that we often get this confused is the way that the stories of the Bible are taught. Now, everybody who teaches wants their students to leave uh, with some practical application. And often, if you just think about Sunday school teachers, especially children's Sunday school teachers, they often, in order to make the lesson practical, make every Bible story a moral story, which ends up, they all say basically this, be like this person, do this, be good, and God will be pleased with you. Just take the story of David and Goliath. It's pretty typical, and you can find all kinds of books for adults that say basically this, be a David, be brave, face your giants, go out and defeat them, whatever those giants are, which for adults are, you know, scary things, threatening things, difficult uh, things. But the story actually says this, You and I need a David. We need a David greater than the David we encounter in this story. We need David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, 
to take on all our enemies, our greatest enemies, sin and death. It's so important. In fact, there are many studies that show that most of the children who grow up in evangelical churches actually believe that what God wants from them is to be good. And if they live well, God will be pleased with them. Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones has written a a story Bible that helps you see that Jesus is the point of every story. It's called the Jesus Story Bible, and I encourage you uh, uh, to use it if you're a young parent or to get it uh, for uh, any grandchildren uh, you may have. God, in other words, has two different tools in his toolbox. One is law, and the other is promise, and they function in different ways. There was a time when I had a lawn. I've gotten rid of the lawn (laughs) now, but I, at that time, all the time, had a mower and a spreader. They served two entirely different purposes. I could push the spreader all over the yard all day long, and not a single blade of grass would get cut. And on the other hand, I could push my mower around each day of a week, and nothing would get greener. So, to use the law for a purpose it's not intended, to use it to change your life or to gain life, more than likely you'll end up stirring up sin. And actually, you will experience the law as taking you as a prisoner. But the scriptures, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of Christ. And we'll look at that uh, more next time. Now, this morning we're just going to focus on promise. And we, as we've been reading chapter 3, we've heard Paul talk about promise, not just promises in general, but promises specifically made to Abraham. In verses 5 and 6, as he contrasts these two ways of living, he says, look at Abraham. Abraham illustrates exactly what I'm saying. We live by relying on the promises. And then in verses 8 and 9, as Paul argues that God always planned to justify us and make us right with him uh, by faith, he says the gospel was announced in this promise. In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's one of the promises given to Abraham in the 12th chapter of Genesis. This blessing is to have life. It's to have God. It's to have the gift of God's inheritance, eternal life. In other words, it's to have salvation. And this is really important to understand that the promises made to Abraham were more than just farmland or grazing land or real estate. These promises were about God, about gaining God and the blessing of a right relationship with God, of having the life we lost in the Garden of Eden. Look at uh, verse 14 in chapter 3. So that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, just how can Paul connect the promise to the coming of the Spirit? Well, Paul does this, um, and he quotes a a promise given to Abraham in the 12th chapter as uh, well. It's this one. Uh, um, Excuse me. Here, I've lost my my place. Uh, It's from Genesis 17. It's where God promises Abraham an offspring. And that word offspring is literally, that's in 316. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And your offspring, and Paul tells us who this is, who is Christ. Now Paul wants us to observe carefully. He's making a big deal about this. That uh, this word offspring, which refers to uh, descendants, is singular. It's the word seed and not plural seeds. And what he's saying is there is one seed and one offspring, Jesus Christ. And that the promise of salvation, of getting blessings, was given to Jesus Christ. Christ. <laughs> you got that? The promise is given to Jesus. And what Paul is saying that all the promises given to Abraham are really about Jesus. They look beyond the land, beyond Abraham having a great name, being a great uh, nation, uh, beyond uh, Israel and the 12 tribes to Jesus through whom a blessing would come to the whole world. Jesus was always God's plan A. Jesus living and dying and rising for us was always God's plan A. Before he spoke the world into existence, this was God's plan. Giving the law 430 years later was not God saying, plan A isn't working, so we'll go to plan B, uh, the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, as Paul writes here in in Galatians, he's thinking about the story from Genesis 15 that we read. In Genesis 3, 6 is a quote from Genesis 15 where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And I just want to summarize the story very briefly for you. Now, Abraham was waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And in Genesis 15, he's 85 years old. And God comes to him uh, and says, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham says, how can you give me anything, God? Now he's thinking about, he's 85, so he's thinking the grave can't be that far off. He says, I don't have any heirs. I don't have any children at all. And God says, you will have a son. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him righteousness. And then God says, I brought you here to possess this land. And Abraham says, well, how can I be certain? How can I know that this is really going to happen? And so God tells him to gather up some animals, and Abraham knew uh, where this was going, that God was going to enact a covenant with him, a binding agreement. To cut a covenant. And so Abraham cuts these animals in half and sets them along with a line with space in between them. 
And Abraham knows that God is going to uh, affirm and make a formal promise to him in this way. They're going to enter into a covenant. Now, a covenant was a very common thing in Abraham's day. And uh, we don't have anything quite like this covenant today. Perhaps the closest thing we have are contracts. Uh, You know, we want to make a deal. Maybe uh, uh, I want to buy your house. Well, we get our uh, real estate agents and maybe our attorneys involved and we negotiate back and forth until we come to terms, right? The bigger, the bigger th- the something's involved, uh, the bigger the business deal, the more the lawyers get involved and they read this and they read that and they go back and forth and they haggle until an agreement is reached. And this is very different than that. It's very different than our contracts. God restates his promise to Abraham and then night falls and Abraham uh, gets sleepy. He goes to sleep. And then something remarkable happens. God appears as an oven and a flaming torch and God moves through these divided pieces. Walking between those pieces ordinarily would involve both parties. And walking between these animals cut in half was a way of saying, it was a way of taking an oath saying, if I break my promise, may something as terrible as being cut into like these animals happen to me. But here, Abraham doesn't walk down between the pieces. Only God does. And this is saying something that's extremely important. And if you don't get this, well, understanding uh, uh, what the difference is between promise and law or the gospel and law will be confusing for you. You won't be clear about the difference between the golden rule and the gospel or about living by faith and living by obedience. God's promises of fulfillment entirely rest on God alone to ensure that his promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled. And again, it's not simply the promise of uh, land, the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants, or that Abraham would have a child, but it's the promise of salvation, of a restored relationship with God, the blessings of life which come through Jesus Christ. And that includes the blessing of actually being made holy, of being sanctified. And it's really a good thing that only God walks between these pieces. It's a gracious thing because we're not very good at keeping promises any more than we are at keeping rules or laws. In fact, to bring the promise to pass, God in the person of Jesus stands in for us. It's Jesus who experiences all the consequences of our failure to to keep our promises to God. It's Jesus who's torn in two on the cross. He is rendered so that we might be made whole, that we might be blessed. And as Paul writes Genesis 3, he has this very much in his mind. And he's simply pointing out to the Galatians, it's impossible for God to add obedience 
to demand obedience uh, to his covenantal uh, promise. Because he's already guaranteed that it will be kept, that he will keep his promise. How then is it possible that he would add law to that? So now all of this has to be lived out. It's, it has to be applied. It's not enough to believe it. You actually need to live it out. Law and promise are in principle absolutely antithetical as a way to relate to God, to gain God, to obtain salvation, uh, to receive acceptance, or to be transformed. It's as different as a hammer and a screwdriver or a mower and a spreader. But they are not incompatible. Galatians 3, 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, if you really listen to the law, it says more than obey this. The law that Moses received included the tabernacle, the sacrifices, uh, the laws of purity, about what you couldn't, couldn't do. Because if you did what was forbidden, you couldn't approach the tabernacle or the temple. In other words, you couldn't come to God. The laws of sacrifice were given on the assumption that you need to be forgiven, that you can't keep the law. Now, it may be surprising, and I know many people are surprised uh, by this, that the sacrifices were given to cleanse unintentional, accidental sin, and not intentional sin, which is rebellion. They only cover accidental, which is why they say if this happens or when it's discovered that you've done this thing. There's only one provision in the Old Testament law for forgiveness, for rebellion, for intentional sin. And that's the sacrifices made on the Day of Atonement. Those sacrifices are commanded to be done every year. And they're given in great detail. Why? They're not commanded, if Israel has committed a sin, you know, you may need to have a day of atonement. No, it's commanded every year there will be a day of atonement. Because every year Israel broke the law. It, not just unintentionally, but intentionally. They rebelled against God. That's Leviticus 16, 21 and 34, if you want to see that. God uh, is commanding the sacrifices, giving the sacrifices in the law, and what he's telling us is we can't keep it. It never said by keeping the law you can be saved. No, it says you can't keep me. Now, please understand, we should honor our parents. We should live faithfully if we're uh, married in purity, whether we're married or uh, single. We should seek to protect life and property and the truth. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. We should do unto others as we would have them do, do to us. We should live this way. It's a light on our path. It shows us what pleases God and is good for us. So the law shows us that we need a Savior, a promise of salvation. 
It doesn't displace the promise as if promise was somehow obsolete. The law says, examine yourself. Look not only at what you didn't do, what you refrained from. It says, look at what it positively commands. Love, fear, and serve God with your whole heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are impossibly high demands. And it also says, listen. Look at your motives. It's not enough to refrain from sexual impurity or stealing. The question is, do you want to? Do you want to possess the beauty of another? Do you really want the thing that you don't have? It says you should be content with your life. And no one is all of these things all of the time. If you know your heart, if you listen to the law deeply, you know it exposes these things, that none of us are this way all the time. If we are saved by our performance, by what you'll do, you'll never let yourself see all the law's demands. If you believe your relationship with God that he relates to you on the basis of your performance, or you relate to him on the, on the basis of performance, then you won't be able to look in the law and admit how flawed your obedience is. It'll leave you feeling guilty the closer you listen to it. The only way you can look at it deeply and think it makes you uh, in some uh, way acceptable to God is either to fool yourself about what's really going on in the deepest parts of your thoughts and heart or to dumb it down and make it manageable. This is the point of Jesus telling uh, the parable we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's exposing the hearts of the religious leaders who want to narrow down by definition who is my neighbor. And it fails to shock us anymore. But that's the point. You can't make the law manageable. It can't be dumbed down. The only way you can say, I love your law, that it's sweet like honey to me, is when you read it and know there's no condemnation. When you read it knowing that Jesus has kept it all for you. The law can no longer then crush you. Now very quickly, three more things. One, you can't understand the Bible without a gospel. It'll just be a closed book for you. It'll be a book of morals with mostly a lot of people who, well, their behavior is terrible. And much of it will simply be incomprehensible to you. Third thing is you'll never live boldly, confidently, with a deep assurance of God's love and the security you have with him. See, if you grasp that all of salvation, the totality of salvation, is by promise, justification, sanctification, uh, perseverance and glorification, then you can pray this. Lord, make me like Jesus. Lord, 
make me someone who loves my enemies the way you love your enemies. In other words, you're free to struggle. You're free to fail. Because if you fall on your face, well, you're not condemned. Get right back up and, and say, Lord, I still want to be like Jesus. And lastly, God's word is absolutely true. Every syllable. Paul presses this argument that all the promises have been given to Abraham's single seed, Jesus, on the basis of a single letter, the letter S. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we possess Christ, we possess certainty that all that's been promised to him is now ours. And Lord, uh, as we uh, look to you in the hope of receiving all of that, and as we are still in process, uh, we thank you that we can be assured. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. We thank you uh, for the light that your uh, law is. We thank you that the law can no longer condemn us. Oh, Lord, teach us in the deepest parts of our hearts to be so enamored with you that our desires are lifted up to you, that we want more and more of you. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.